My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? This is Thomas from trainfully.com, and you are listening to the Train Fully podcast, the show dedicated to helping you enhance your golf performance. Now, if you like our podcast and you find it's helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, for those of you who know me, you know how much I love my job. And what I love most about it is connecting with you. Golfers reach out to me all the time, and they're looking for advice on how to recover from injuries. They're looking for advice on how to safely and effectively increase their club head speed and driving distance. And my passion is helping golfers get the most out of their body so that they can have more fun playing the game they love. And I want to help everybody. The issue is not everyone can work with me one-on-one right? First of all, our schedules are extremely busy and it can be hard to find a time to connect, but it's also not in everybody's budget, right? So to accommodate that, I've created the train fully inner circle. By joining my inner circle, I become your rehab specialist and performance coach, but at a fraction of what it costs to work with me one-on-one. For $14 a month, you get access to all my performance rehab and training programs, as well as live weekly training sessions and Q&As, where you can ask me questions, and I'll show you how to recover from specific injuries and safely and effectively increase your club head speed and enhance your performance, right? So you'll get full access to me. So if you're dealing with injuries or you want to become a better golfer, head over to trainfully.com and join my inner circle. Now, speaking of injuries... Today's episode is about shoulder injuries, and we have Dr. Mike Scaduto joining us. He's from Champion Physical Therapy and Performance, and we're going to do a deep dive into shoulder injuries in golf. I encourage you to check out Mike's website, mikescaduto.com, and give him a follow on social media. His handle is at DPT. But before we get into the episode, I do want to give you some information first, because this is a fairly technical episode, and I think you'll get more out of it if I give you this information beforehand. First and foremost, shoulder pain is very common. In fact, it's almost as common as low back pain. According to the literature, 70% of us will experience shoulder pain at some point during our life. And for 40 to 50% of those who do experience shoulder pain, the pain will last for more than a year. So this is a pretty big problem. And I know that for many of the people who reach out to me, shoulder pain isn't just keeping them from playing their best golf. Quite often, it's actually keeping them from playing any golf at all. So why is shoulder pain so common? Well, there's a number of theories. It might have to do with the fact that we're now more active throughout our lifespan. And that could certainly be true for golfers, right? We're exposing our shoulders to a lot more wear and tear. And because of that, they're more prone to injury. But there's other factors involved as well. And I know that for the population I work with, posture is often a leading contributing factor 
to a lot of different types of shoulder injuries. We're spending a lot of time sitting now in front of computers, staring at screens and driving cars. And because of that, we're ending up with a forward head posture with rounded shoulders and a hunched upper back. And we know that people who have that anterior posture quite often exhibit shoulder blades that are protracted, anteriorly tilted, and internally rotated. And we call that scapular dyskinesis. Any change in the alignment or mechanics of the shoulder blades is referred to as scapular dyskinesis. This is a term coined by Dr. Ben Kibler, one of the leading researchers in this area. And we know from Dr. Kibler's research, as well as research from other people, that there's good evidence to support that scapular dyskinesis can lead and contribute to shoulder pain. Now, there's two main reasons for that. First of all, the shoulder is a ball and socket joint, and the socket is the top outside corner of the shoulder blade, right? So if you have poor control over your shoulder blade, that means you're going to have poor control over your shoulder socket, which will reduce mobility and increase wear and tear. But scapular dyskinesis also decreases the size of the subacromial space. So this is the space above the head of the humerus and below the acromion process of the scapula, the bursa, the biceps tendon, and the rotator cuff are all located within this space, right? And it's a very small space to begin with. So if you have scapular dyskinesis and the size of the subacromial space has become even smaller, well, now there's more wear and tear on the tissues located within it, and you're going to be more prone to injury. Now, does that mean that everybody who has a forward head posture or everyone who has scapular dyskinesis is going to get shoulder pain? No, of course not. But it does mean that if you do have shoulder pain and you also have scapular dyskinesis or a forward head posture, then it's probably a good idea to normalize your posture and get your shoulder blades into a more upright position because we know from MRI studies that we can increase the size of the subacromial space by up to 200% by getting the shoulder blades more retracted and posteriorly tilted. And one of the ways we can do that is by optimizing the upper trap, lower trap ratio. Now, the trapezius, we often pretend the trapezius is three muscles, upper, middle, and lower. It's actually one muscle, but we divide it into three parts because we get different ratios of muscle activity between the different parts, depending on the position and alignment of the body. When the three parts of the trapezius are working synergistically, we get optimum scapular control and shoulder function. But if we have an imbalance between them, that can result in poor motor control, decreased mobility and pain. In fact, studies showed that people who have shoulder pain tend to have a three to one upper trap, lower trap ratio, whereas people with no pain have a less than two to one upper trap, lower trap ratio. And I'm going to show you how to optimize the upper trap, lower trap ratio in the train fully inner circle. It'll be the focus of our performance rehab and training as well as office hours this week. So if you're a member of my inner circle, go to events and click performance rehab and training to join. If you're not a member, you can become one 
by going to trainfully.com. Now, guys, enjoy the episode and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. All right, so joining us today, Dr. Mike Scaduto from Champion Physical Therapy and Performance. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Thomas. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to get into uh, different types of shoulder injuries here in a moment. But before we do that, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you got into golf performance? Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a physical therapist. I'm a clinician um, at heart. So I work at Champion Physical Therapy and Performance. Um, we're down in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and primarily my job involves treating patients. So uh, we're at a cash-based physical therapy clinic. Um, which gives us certain privileges when we're treating patients. You know, we see a very specific clientele. Um, so we started as kind of a baseball-specific physical therapy clinic. Um, the two owners of the clinic, Mike Reinald and Lenny Macrina, um, have some pretty significant background in the baseball world um, and in the research world with shoulder and elbow injuries. Um, so that's kind of how Champion started. And I was a clinical student at Champion, um, my last clinical rotation. They ended up offering me a job and they said, look, I know you really like, I know you really like golf. Um, you like playing golf. You know, how do you feel about kind of heading our, uh, our venture into the golf performance world? And I took that kind of head on and, and I've run with it over the past couple of years. And we've grown our golf um, performance business, you know, to the point where it is today, which, you know, in terms of my personal case work, uh, caseload, I still see a lot of baseball players. Um, but you know, treating golfers hands-on throughout the course of the year um, of all different levels. So we see youth, college, and uh, professional athletes. So uh, this is actually a question that just popped to mind now, and it's something that I've thought about quite a bit. I, I, I've worked with a few baseball players, nothing like what you guys work with. I mean, you guys are working with the professionals, the guys in the major leagues. How much of a crossover, a similarity, is there between golf and baseball because they're both rotational sports, but there is some differences. How much, how similar are they? Yeah, I think, I think some of the biggest differences are the injuries that um, the athletes face, right? So for baseball, you know, we work with a lot of pitchers. We do see hitters, um, but for pitchers, you know, it's shoulder and elbow injuries, Tommy John and, and big labral tears and things like that. Um, golfers, we tend to see, you know, less, certainly less traumatic injuries, but then, um, you know, on the most part, less injuries specific from golf that are requiring a major surgery. Um, we do see that, but it's much less common than in the baseball world. Um, from a training perspective, um, you know, we kind of take the 80-20 approach. So 80% of our training for a rotational athlete, regardless of the sport, is pretty much the same. You know, they're doing the fundamental movement patterns, they're building some strength, we're working on power development. Um, and then the 20% of you know the sports specific training you know maybe it differs a little bit in terms of baseball and golf um, baseball maybe has a higher um, pure strength um, necessity than golf i think golf is a little bit more elastic in nature um, and they don't quite need as much um, you know absolute strength as a baseball player um, but the training is is pretty similar um, with maybe a few key differences here and there so then this is another question that popped to mind here what and this might be a loaded question to put it on the spot here but what do you make of the the type of training that bryson had done recently to really bulk up and try to maximize the strength and power from your 
perspective, do you think that was the most productive thing that he could have done? Well, I guess I'm biased, right? I'm a physical therapist. So I tend to see people when they're injured for the most part. We do see people pre-injury for prevention and for performance. But a lot of what I do is I, I try and help people out if they're in pain or if they have a significant injury. So I think my first thought when I saw Bryson was doing what he was doing was, okay, how, how are we mitigating the risk of injury? We know that the golf swing is very stressful on the body. Um, and to see how he was training, I think he took a very scientific approach um, and he had very good advice. Um, but when you watch some of his golf specific practice, you know, he was taking so many max effort driver swings. And my, my concern was that that may catch up with him at some point and you know, whatever the weakest part in the chain for him may be, um, he may end up getting injured. And I definitely don't wish that upon him by any means. Um, but that was my, my first concern for him. And I think the incentive is there though, right? The incentive to gain distance um, pretty much by any means necessary is, is there in the professional game. We know the stats on um, earnings and correlation with driving distance and it's, it's pretty significant, right? Guys that hit the ball further tend to earn more money on the PGA Tour. So I can totally see the incentive. If Bryson's goal, he wants to win as many majors as possible, you know, gaining distance puts him at a pretty significant advantage over the rest of the field. Um, so I think he was really, he took the groundwork that a lot of other players built and he kind of accelerated. And now we're starting to see other players um, go down a similar path. And it'll be interesting to see how the game changes over the next couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the, the shoulder injuries here. Um, I don't know about you, Mike, but I would say that, um, especially recently, but I would say that shoulder injuries are probably just as common as back injuries, low back injuries in the population that I work with. And in fact, when you look at the literature, I think it's something, I think it's like 70% of us at some point in our life will experience shoulder pain. So why don't we jump in it now? I think the most common type of shoulder pain that I see are rotator cuff injuries. So why don't we start here? What are rotator cuff injuries and, and why are they so common? Yeah, I think it goes down to understanding the shoulder joint, right? So, you know, we all have the classic picture of the, the ball and socket joint for the shoulder. Um, and, you know, inherently that makes the shoulder joint relatively unstable, right? Because it is so mobile, um, there is, you know, some lack of stability around the shoulder joint. We see, you know, when we look at range of motion of the shoulder, we see these crazy um, amounts of range of motion into rotation and into overhead elevation, and we can kind of move our shoulder in any direction. Um, so that inherent mobility has, comes at the cost of stability. So the rotator cuff's main function is to provide stability of the humeral head in the glenoid or of the ball in the socket as we move our arm. So the rotator cuff is four muscles that act together to provide centration of the humeral head in the glenoid. Um, so if we have a rotator cuff injury and there's, there's multiple different kinds, um, we can have an impingement where you know, either subacromial impingement or we can have posterior impingement where we're getting some kind of compressive force through the rotator cuff tendon usually. Um, we can have a rotator cuff tear, which can occur at different parts within the rotator cuff tendon. Um, and these will impair the rotator cuff's ability to produce the force required to stabilize the shoulder as we move 
um, our arm around in space. Okay, so once we have that um, impaired stability, I think people start to run into other problems as they go to move their, their shoulder around in space, um, and that can cause pain, that can cause a decrease in performance, um, and that can cause them to, to miss time um, with golf or with, with general training, and that can carry over into their day-to-day -day life. Yeah, and, and I think that one of the things that I've noticed, you know, over 20 years, um, quite often when somebody comes in and they have an MRI, it says, okay, they got a rotator cuff tear. I would say like 80 to 90% of the time, probably they also have postural issues, right? And I noticed that quite often they'll have like a forward head posture, they'll have rounded shoulders, they'll have a hunched upper back. And we know that generally speaking, people who have that type of posture are going to have shoulder blades that are anteriorly tilted, they're internally rotated, and they're protracted. And that's going to decrease the size of the subacromial space, going to cause some impingement, like you said. And so in terms of, of the, say, like the rehab or the home program, I'm focusing a lot on trying to normalize the posture and get the shoulder blades back. We know from from MRI studies that we can increase the size of the subacromial space by up to 200%. But aside from normalizing posture and getting those shoulder blades back, I want to ask you about uh, tissue regeneration. So I get asked this a lot about uh, PRP injections, but how would you compare? Cause I know you guys at champion do a lot of uh, blood flow restriction. Maybe, maybe talk a little bit about the PRP injections, the blood flow restriction and how, those types of therapies can help actually regenerate tissue. Yeah, I think I think there's so much that we're learning about biologics um, from a from the orthopedic surgery world, um, stem cells and PRPs being two options. Um, so PRP is a platelet platelet rich plasma. Um, basically, they withdraw some blood from the body, spin it around in a centrifuge that separates the blood into its different components. They can take the um, platelet platelet-rich plasma, sorry, it's a mouthful, and inject that into certain tissues, right? And the goal, of, the idea is that that can help promote some healing. So we'll see that um, in baseball players, we see PRP injections into the UCL um, to help promote some healing after a sprain. We'll see that um, in combination with certain surgeries. So some surgeons will do a, a PRP injection with a rotator cuff repair to hopefully help um, you know, expedite the healing process or speed up the healing process a little bit. Um, I think when we look at the research, um, it's a little bit murky in terms of um, the results that we get with a, with a PRP injection. And, you know, as with anything in the medical research, it's really tough to tease out very specific variables. So we can't say for sure that a PRP injection is super useful and has a really great long-term benefit to the patient in terms of improving healing. Um, the other thing, at least in the United States, insurance companies don't cover PRP injections. So it's often an out-of-pocket cost um, to the patient and it can be pretty expensive to, to do that procedure. Um, so typically our recommendation is, um, you know, we tell patients that are considering a PRP injection, we say, well, look, I think it's something that you could try. Um, we don't necessarily know what the ideal um, dosage of a PRP is. We don't necessarily know what the ideal way to rehab a PRP uh, injection is to get the best benefit of the procedure. 
um, but it's certainly something that you can try. Most likely not going to help, or sorry, most likely not going to hurt you in any way. Um, we're just not sure how much it's going to help you in the long run. So that's kind of the advice that we give. And I think we're, we're, we're always learning more, especially about PRPs on this emerging side of, of biologics. Um, so as we learn more, maybe that recommendation will change. And I think the, the surgeons and everyone involved in that procedure is they're, they're really honing their skills um, and learning so much more that I, I do think there is a pretty bright future. We just might not be there right now. Yeah, and that, that's kind of what I've noticed too. I'd say like, I mean, I don't have the stats. I, I should actually keep keep uh, better records of, of this stuff specifically, but maybe 50% of the people that I know that have tried it, that's made a noticeable improvement, where the other half, it, it really hasn't seemed to have done anything at all. What about the blood flow restriction? Do you use that much? We do use blood flow restriction, um, absolutely. So, uh, you know, blood flow restriction is a great way to um, basically create a, a chemically stressful environment in a muscle without a significant amount of load. So for us, we treat a lot of patients that are post-operative. Um, post-operative, you're really limited in how much load you can put through a certain tissue. So say for an ACL surgery in the knee, um, there's often, um, you know, you don't wanna put a ton, of, uh, a ton of load directly through the knee in those first couple of weeks post-op. But we know that quad strength is, is very, very important. So BFR allows us to help, working, uh, help work on quad hypertrophy with the hope that that can carry over into some quad strength gains once we start loading um, without putting a ton of stress through the joint. So we see BFR as a, as a very useful tool. Um, we use it, you know, we said post-operatively. We'll also use it for, uh, for training um, in a, you know, quote unquote, healthy athlete. It can be a great way to uh, incorporate a deload week in their training where we give them some BFR accessory work where we're, again, limiting the amount of stress through a, through a joint while also still stimulating the muscle uh, and not losing any, any strength gains over the course of, you know, four to six weeks. Yeah, it's very cool. It's, it's like you're tricking the biology into thinking that you're training much harder than you actually are. So you're getting the, yeah. the benefits of really intense training without having to put your body through that stress. It's, it's uh, certainly, it's certainly intense. It's, it's a really unique feeling when you're doing uh, blood flow restriction training. It's, it's grueling. <laughs> I wonder how, like, even like, so I used to work a lot with, with national hockey league players. I, I, first thing that comes to mind when we're talking about this is how that could possibly benefit say in season training for guys that have incredibly um, heavy workloads in terms of practice and, 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 and playing games and all that, and how that might in the future become more of a practice just in terms of, like you said, with the healthy athletes as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think, again, we're, learn we're continuing to learn more. It's a very hot topic in physical therapy um, and strength and conditioning. You know, how, do we, how do we utilize this piece of equipment to its maximum potential? Um, so I think we will, we will certainly continue to learn more. And I think one of the coolest things about blood flow restriction training is the hormonal response that you get. So you get a, uh, you know, if you have a cuff around your leg, you get some effects distally or further, further down the leg. Um, but you also get some, some proximal effects and you get a, a systemic effect of these, you know, hormones that are being released, um, in your body that can help with muscle growth that can help with you know, all, all these different things. So 
as we continue to learn more, I think there'll be some brilliant people that really figure out how to, how to utilize this. Um, I think it could be a great tool for, for in-season training for athletes that are um, looking to maintain their strength without putting a ton of tensile loading through tissues because of their, their sport workload. So then, so we'll wrap up the rotator cuff here. Um, people usually know, I mean, get a lot of people with MRIs and, and whatnot images of their shoulder. They have rotator cuff tears. They have rotator cuff injuries. What would you like general recommendations for a home program or, you know, if they're working out in a gym, what should they be focusing on? Yeah. The first thing, whenever someone comes in with a rotator cuff tear, um, on an MRI, we are, we're always co trying to correlate that with their clinical exam, right? So you can see, and I've seen this in my practice, um, you know, you see these fairly large rotator cuff tears that involve, you know, one to two, maybe three tendons, um, of the rotator cuff, and they actually still have pretty good function of their shoulder. Um, so MRI findings are not always correlated with, uh, their clinical presentation. Um, so I would say it starts with the assessment, figure out what they, what they can do and figure out what they really struggle with. Um, but generally I think with a rotator cuff, we'll say a rotator cuff tear, we want to make sure that you have full shoulder range of motion, right? Um, if you have any capsular stiffness, that may be something that could limit range of motion. Maybe you have some muscular tightness in key areas that could limit range of motion. Um, so we want to normalize your range of motion as much as we can. And then it's about, uh, promoting strength and stability. All right. So those two things go hand in hand, but they are also a little bit different. So I, I explained strength as your body's or your muscles ability to produce force and I describe stability as um, your body's ability to produce force to counteract a certain movement or to counteract a certain force to prevent movement, right? So I think we have to work on both of those, especially in the presence of a rotator cuff tear. And, and this is something uh, for the listeners that's going to come up a lot is, is quite often the, the, I guess, the, the, the rehab protocol for a lot of these pathologies is very similar and the best approach if you're trying to navigate through this first of all when to have mike's contact information here and you can reach out to him you can reach out to myself or or see a specialist a rehab specialist in your area but really you're trying to find um the movements that don't really cause an increase in your pain you know like you're looking for a range of say three out of ten in terms of of a pain level and then slowly trying to um expose your body to those movements that are a little bit more maybe uncomfortable and trying to increase your capacity that way you're not you know if you're doing a an exercise and it's causing a lot of pain you, you probably don't want to be doing that exercise but again this is something that with any rehab you you should really reach out to a professional like i said we'll have mike's contact here at the end and you can you can make uh, uh send him a message if you have more questions Let's move on to shoulder instability. This is something that I've actually have firsthand experience with. I've dislocated my shoulder in 2004. Um, I'd love to hear the story if you, if you want to share. Yeah. So actually, yeah. So playing hockey and um, going wide on the defenseman, cutting to the net on my forehand. So for anybody who's played hockey, that's a little bit harder turn to make than on your backhand, just because of the, uh, the mechanics and the leverage and the moment arms involved. So it's a little bit more of a challenging turn. 
made the turn all right and a little bit of a bump shoulder to shoulder hit a, a rut in the ice and was just that sort of perfect distance away from the end boards to just cause the most damage possible so i went shoulder it was a posterior blunt force that pushed the shoulder out anteriorly um a pretty severe dislocation it was out for four hours while they did all the imaging to make sure there was no nerve damage and and no uh arteries or anything uh, entrapped um the the orthopod that i worked with at the time he told me that if we could go two years without it you know having a recurrence then it would be pretty be pretty um home free in terms of having a, a future injury and so i was able to do that but well, so why don't we talk a little bit about this um maybe i don't know how let, let's get into the anatomy a little bit what happens to the shoulder when you dislocate your shoulder anteriorly which is what like 95 percent of the people do Right. Yeah. The vast majority of dislocations are anterior. Um, so anterior and anterior inferior, right? So we, we talked a little bit about, um, the inherent instability of the shoulder joint, right? So it's the ball and socket joint. So what are the, some of the ways that the shoulder gains stability? The first would be the labrum. So the labrum sits within the joint. Um, it's a fibrocartilaginous ring that sits around the glenoid. And what it does is it deepens the socket. Right, so it improves the, the congruency between the ball and the socket. Okay, um, then you have the joint capsule. Right, so this is a um, you know a type of tissue that pretty much wraps around the entire shoulder joint, um, and that can prevent excess motion of the of the humeral head moving around in the glenoid. Um, and so those are two static stabilizers. Right? And then you have your dynamic stabilizers, which are your rotator cuff muscles and the muscles that surround the shoulder joint. When we have a dislocation, um, so a dislocation is the humeral head sliding all the way out of the socket and staying there. And, it, and it, the result of that is someone else needs to come and put your shoulder back in. We need to reduce that dislocation and it takes the force of someone else doing that to bring it back in. Uh, Compare that to a subluxation. So a subluxation is when the humeral head moves out of the joint but comes back in spontaneously on its own. It doesn't require somebody else to put your, put, reduce your shoulder. Um, so when we dislocate, very often, vast majority of times, we have to go through some kind of tissue to get the shoulder out of the joint, right? Um, so what happens is often we'll have a tear in the labrum um, if it's an anterior dislocation, we tend to see a, a tearing in the anterior, anterior, inferior part of the labrum. Um, we call that a bank art tear, um, where the, that part of the labrum is torn. And then the capsule, which surrounds the shoulder, um, can get stretched out. And it gets stretched out from the, from the humeral head kind of pushing into it. And the longer that your shoulder stays dislocated, um, you know, potentially the more stretched out that, that can become. Um, and then the interesting thing is with shoulder dislocation, um, when we reduce the shoulder, what will happen is the, the humeral head will actually contact the glenoid rim. Um, so when you slide the shoulder back in with a posterior uh, force, the posterior aspect of the humeral head will contact the anterior aspect of the glenoid, um, and that can cause something called a Hill-Sachs lesion. So, and if you do dislocate your shoulder enough times, that Hill-Sachs lesion can, can grow in size. 
Um, and that can become a big issue for people when they move their arms in certain ways. The Hill Sachs lesion can articulate in the joint and it feels like you're running over a pothole. You get this big clunk um, and it doesn't feel good and it's like crunchy and weird. Um, so you have some, typically we'll have some damage to the labrum, to the joint capsule, and sometimes you'll have a bony um, defect on the humeral head and you can also have bone loss of the anterior aspect of the glenoid with an anterior dislocation. So shoulder dislocation is a big deal, right? So there's a lot of things that can happen and, and you touched on, you know, any neurovascular structures in the area can get compressed or damaged. Um, so it's definitely a big deal. And I think I see a lot of, a lot of athletes that have a history of a shoulder dislocation and they're apprehensive when I move their shoulder passively. Um, but they don't necessarily, um, I think they, they want to believe it's not a super big deal for them in regards to their sport, but that's something that can, that can last um, a long time and have you know, lasting implications in their athletic performance. You know, it's interesting because even to this day, so this is what, 18 years ago, the um, muscle, like it's still atrophied. Yeah. Like that deltoid never regained full hypertrophy back compared to the other side. And right. it's still, and I've noticed now, and, and of course, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a professional. I know exactly what, what I'm doing with this. And even for me and, and all the work that I put into it, it's now starting to cause some, some pain as I'm getting older. And so it's something that if, if you have experienced, if you have had a dislocation, again, you got to get on top of it and, and, and start working on it so it doesn't become an issue going forward. Another issue is you talked about, you know, the static stabilizers becoming uh, damaged and so we have less static stability which means we're now more reliant on the dynamic st stabilizers the rotator cuff in particular it also puts us into a precarious situation whenever you're kind of it's less of an issue with golf like I, I i did a post on this earlier in the week where i talked about you know having worked with nhl hockey players i've, I've seen a lot of first time and recurrent dislocations I haven't seen a first time dislocation from golf. You know, I could, maybe I could see it happening. Somebody hitting a root or, you know, something very traumatic. Maybe they have a, some sort of history with shoulder injuries leading into that. But what I have seen uh, in a couple of people is they were having uh, subluxations or some kind of just sliding, uh, something that was not feeling comfortable during their swing. And the issue with that is, as you kind of, as you say, if it's your trail arm, for example, or your lead arm in the follow through, but these two gentlemen had it in their trail arm. When you kind of rotate back and you kind of cock your arm back, you're externally rotating and, and horizontally abducting your shoulder joint. And when you do that, the humeral head glides anterior in the socket. And just like Mike touched on, I mean, that, that humeral head is going to want to keep going. What would normally stop it in a healthy shoulder is those static stabilizers, the labrum and, and the, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. But if they've been stretched out, if there's laxity there, there's really not a whole lot to stop that humeral head from just kind of keep going forward and you get a subluxation or you just get this really kind of gross feeling where there's just some slippage there. Yeah. And, I, and in terms of the trail shoulder, um, I definitely tend to see that manifest in the transition into the downswing. So where their arm is in that, you know, abducted position and externally rotated, 
but their body's actually rotating towards the target, right? During that transition, when their, their hip is firing, then their thorax is firing, and, the, and they're trying to create some lag in the club, um, I think that's when they, they start to feel a little bit of pain or some instability in the trail shoulder. Yeah. So then in terms of, of a home program, what would you recommend if people feel like, yeah, I'm getting some slippage in my shoulder, what should they be working on? Yeah, definitely all comes back to getting assessed again, for sure. Um, I would say that, that because we have a, an impairment in our static stabilizers, um, it puts an increased emphasis on our dynamic stability. So that, that person would have to make sure that their rotator cuff is super duper strong, right? Like not just average strength. We're talking about above average strength pretty significantly. And at Champion, we have, we have certain um, baseline uh, tests that we look at. We use a handheld dynamometer to test rotator cuff strength. And then we have ratios that we, that we, uh, that we want from our athletes, depending on their sport, um, for their rotator cuff strength. But if you have a history of dislocations, your rotator cuff strength has to be phenomenal to, mm -hmm. to be able to compensate for that. Yeah, and the, and the moral of the story, guys, is if you can get yourself to champion, do that. Do yourself a favor and see Mike. These guys are, are honestly the top of the food chain when it comes to physical therapy and performance. Um, let's move on to slap lesions. These I'm seeing more and more. And I, you know what, as I'm saying that, I think <laughs> one of the things that's happening is shoulder pain, as we've talked about is so common. So we're getting more and more people getting images of their shoulder. And of course, the more images you get, the more pathology you find, but slap lesions are certainly becoming more and more common. Maybe explain what a slap lesion is and how they develop. Right, so slap lesion um, stands for superior labral anterior to posterior tear. So it's the top part of the, um, the labrum. Um, and that's where your biceps tendon attaches. There's a, there's a few different types of slap lesions. Some involve the biceps tendon um, actually you know, pulling the labrum off of the, the bone a little bit. And the others can just involve the, the top part of the labrum and the biceps remains intact. Um, but in terms of how they develop, um, there's, there's definitely a few mechanisms of injury, um, that we see, uh, with a slap lesion. So we see it a lot in baseball players. This is the classic, uh, baseball injury where they're in forced external rotation at 90 degrees of, um, abduction and they get a, we call it the peel back mechanism where that biceps tendon, um, is kind of causing a torsional force over the top of the, uh, labrum. We believe that that can lead to a slap tear. Um, then a traction force, where the arm's trying to fly away from your body at a really high speed. That biceps tendon is pulling um, with kind of like a, an axial load uh, against the labrum. And that can cause a little bit. Um, so in baseball players, we tend to think that that's, it's the combination of those two things that can lead to the, the development of a slap tear. Um, you can also get a slap tear from a fall on an outstretched arm, where if you fall, and land on your arm and that pushes your, your, your shoulder straight up and into the bottom of the acromion, uh, you can get a slap tear that way. Um, in terms of diagnosing it, it's, uh, it's not always super straightforward um, in terms of the special tests for the shoulder. Um, slap, slap tests are notoriously um, difficult. So we, we try and cluster a bunch of tests together. And if we have an MRI and, and that you know, correlates with our findings, I think that's when we start to 
to go down the path of the slap um, slap tear. And in terms of treating it, I mean, it, it again, like you said, it's, it's very similar to other shoulder pathologies. Um, we want to normalize range of motion. We want to decrease pain um, how we, however we can and then improve the dynamic stability. Yeah, and, and it, it comes back to shoulder instability again. Like, you know, if you have a slap tear, that means you're going to have damage to the labrum, which we just talked about is one of the static stabilizers. The biceps tendon also really helps stabilize the shoulder joint. So if you have a lesion there, then you're going to have less stability and you're going to be relying more on those dynamic stable stabilizers. So again, the rotator cuff plays such a huge role quite often in the people that I see that they come in, they have a slap tear. They also have rotator cuff injuries. And so um, really trying to, again, like we talked about earlier, you're trying to find uh, exercises that aren't painful that you can do and you're slowly starting to incorporate the sort of like a graded exposure to the more painful activities or the more painful um, exercises. But again, when it comes to rehab, especially when it comes to, um, I mean, these are pretty significant injuries. You really wanna wanna get professional help with this stuff. This is not necessarily something you wanna try to take on, take on yourself. Um, let's move on to, um, actually another thing I wanna talk about is the, the injury mechanism or um, even the diagnosis is, is particularly important with, with slap tears because it's going to guide your, your rehab, not so much because it's going to you know, tell us which exercises we should be doing, but more so which exercises we shouldn't be doing. And that's what Mike touched on. Some of these uh, slap tears involve the biceps tendon. So if you have a detachment from the biceps tendon, you certainly don't want to be doing any activities that are loading that biceps tendon because that's going to make the lesion worse. If you have injured your, your, your labrum because you fell on it and you got a pinching type injury, then you probably don't want to be doing any compression, like closed chain bridging or anything like that. Um, and then quite often with the peel back injuries, you got to be careful with the external rotation. So again, you got to reach out to somebody who knows what they're doing when it comes to these types of injuries. If, if you can get yourself the champion, uh, do that. If not reach out to, to Mike and I, and we can, we can help you out. Uh, stiff shoulder, frozen shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> Another one I see a lot. And this one, these ones have like personalities I find, and, and you almost have to kind of get to know the personality, not of the person. Of course, you have to always get to know the personality of, of the patient, but, this one, the pathology has its own personality quite often. So why don't you explain what frozen shoulder is? Because I know there's a lot of people that reach out to me with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, frozen shoulder is a tricky one to treat. I'll say that off the off the bat. And there's there's definitely some conflicting um, literature on the topic in terms of you know what's the natural progression of adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder. Um, but basically. You know, we talked about how the shoulder has a capsule that surrounds it. And in adhesive capsulitis, um, we start to get a, a restriction in the capsule that can limit how much movement is allowed of the humeral head in the socket. So from a physical therapy standpoint, when we go in and assess the shoulder, one of the things that we look at is passive range of motion. How far can I move this person's arm, right? And that gives us a few hints. Um, in terms of you know potentially a pathology, but also the, the capacity of the joint. Um, so 
people with adhesive capsulitis tend to be limited in passive range of motion. And that gives us our first kind of clue. Um, there's also something that we do called a joint play assessment, where we, we, we go in the best we can. We try to uh, you know, move the humeral head within the joint and, and try and judge how much movement is occurring. Um, and that joint play gives us an idea of the accessory motion at the glenohumeral joint, how much, how much motion is, is available within the joint. Um, in adhesive caspolitis, people tend to have decreased motion in their joint play assessment. So when we start putting those, those things together, we can start to come toward, uh, you know, start to get towards a diagnosis. I mean, we're not necessarily diagnosing them with adhesive capsulitis, um, but one of our impairments could be uh, stiffness through the joint and decreased capsular mobility. And that's going to have some implications as to how we treat it. Yeah. And so this is one that when I first started, when I first graduated and you have like these protocols that, you know, you start here, this is the, the first stage and you do this for a few weeks. And then, you know, as the person progresses, you move on to the next thing. I would say that frozen shoulder is the, is the one pathology that I almost like completely throw out the, the protocols. Like it's completely up to the, at least in the ones that I've seen completely up to the person's shoulder, what's going to happen. Right. And, and so for, for me, I'm, I'm like you said, you're testing the, the mobility of the shoulder. Is it, is there like a, uh, a spasm, right? There, there's really three phases to the, to the, um, to the, uh, I guess the pathology, there's like this freezing phase where it's really painful and it's becoming stiffer. And then there's a frozen phase where it really doesn't hurt very much, but it doesn't move. And then there's a thawing phase and I don't know, you might know this better than I do, Mike, but the literature is kind of conflicting on whether like we can really uh, have any effect on the progression of that sort of systemic process. Is that true? Like, how do you feel about that? Is that, can we really intervene much with that? Or are we trying to just manage the person, which whatever phase they're in? Yeah, I think it comes down to management um, of their of their symptoms and of their impairments. Um, and again, like you said, there is definitely conflicting evidence in terms of the long term progression of adhesive capsulitis. You know, uh, when there's and I don't know the name of the study off the top of my head, but they looked at you know two years follow up of people that underwent really intense physical therapy and people that that didn't, and they had pretty similar results at, at the end of two years. Now, my question would be, do, were the people that were doing physical therapy, did they feel better throughout that two years and were able to do more than the people that didn't do physical therapy um, at all? Maybe they got to a very similar point, but the quality of life throughout that time period hopefully was better for the people that were undergoing physical therapy if we were treating it correctly. I think what I tend to see, and, and we, we see a lot of patients um, that are transitioning from another PT clinic um, to come see us at various stages of adhesive capsulitis. And I think something that the approach that we try and take when we're, when we're working with these people is frequency and consistency over intensity, right? So you can take somebody into a really intense stretch of their shoulder when they have adhesive capsulitis, and we think that that flares the tissue up more. So we try and do a very mild or low grade stretch um, more frequently and consistently over the course of time 
to help improve motion as opposed to being on the more aggressive side of this the stretch um, we tend to think that that can cause you know maybe can set off that inflammatory cascade maybe can make them actually a little bit stiffer in the long run um, so we'll use you know active assisted range of motion where they're going to a two to three out of ten um, discomfort but they're doing that you know a hundred times a day and they're yeah. doing that every single day a week um, we'll use low low long duration stretching in a very gentle um, manner um, without pushing too far right to try and help with some capsular mobility um, so I think the treatment strategy is very important important throughout the different phases of adhesive adhesive capsulitis um, but I think so a lot of our success with this patient is is just based on that principle of frequency and consistency over intensity. Yeah, I, I have a, I have a couple of people right now with frozen shoulder, but one in particular is a dentist. So you can't like I can't do anything that is going to potentially cause a flare up because he has to use his shoulder all day and see patients. Yeah. And so the, the the focus that I have is every time he comes in. Uh, I see him once or twice a week. Every time he comes in, we test the capsule. I'm looking to see if there's like a spasm there. If there's a spasm, I really don't do anything on the actual shoulder joint. My focus is going to be on the scapular stabilizers and trying to really improve the his ability to move his shoulder blade, right? Because right? um, for the people listening, the, the shoulder blades, the shoulder sockets, the top outside corner of the shoulder blade is actually the, the socket of the shoulder joint. And so if you can move your shoulder blade better, you can get more mobility out of your shoulder without having to move your shoulder so much. And having worked with this gentleman has really kind of um, helped, I guess, advance my, my approach to frozen shoulder because if I do anything that, that uh, irritates the shoulder, like Mike said, if you're aggressive with these things and, and, you can have a flare up and then for this, for this guy, then he can't work. And then you got people with toothaches. So there's a lot, yeah. I, I got a lot to think about when I, when I work with him. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, we're obviously using our, our shoulder for pretty much everything that we do with our arms. It's super important. So you always want to, the first thing is do no harm. Um, you don't want to make somebody worse. Yeah. And uh, I think the, you know, that's a perfect way to describe it. You have to judge it based on how that person's reacting, you know, that day. In terms yeah, of treatment. You, you, and again, so that's what I come back to what I first said is the shoulder actually dictates the therapy, at least for me with frozen shoulder. It's like, okay, what kind of mood is the shoulder in today? Okay, well, this is what we're going to work on then. We're going to work around the person personality of the uh, pathology. Yeah. Um, the home program, quite often I give people, you know, uh, like a five minute thing. And like you talked about, like a hundred times a day, literally, this is like a five minute routine that they'll do like 10 times a day. So the sometimes even more, right. Depending on, on, on the person, but so they're doing rehab for like an hour, maybe even an hour and a half a day, but it's in like five minute chunks, like Mike said. Yep. Consistency is key. So let's move on to shoulder osteoarthritis. So this is an, another thing that I see a lot and I think it's becoming more common. Um, why do you think arthritis is becoming so common in the shoulder? Well, interesting. And I think it is certainly something that we see. Um, a lot of people will make the argument that some form of osteoarthritis in our joints is, is a normal part of the aging process. Um, potentially, what we're seeing now is as people have 
have become more active in athletics and they're, they're starting to get a little bit older. Uh, maybe we're starting to see some more wear and tear um, in the shoulder joint. Um, the other thing with, with osteoarthritis is um, if you have a history of shoulder instability, I think your likelihood of developing osteoarthritis goes up pretty significantly. Um, if you've had a dislocation, certainly that risk of, of OA goes up as well. Um, and I think it's quite interesting. We, in, in terms of golf, one of uh, the big golf injuries that, that I see is AC joint osteoarthritis. Um, and they tend, golfers tend to complain about lead shoulder pain at the top of the backswing. And they'll often point right to their AC joint. Uh, and in, in older people, my first thought is, okay, you know, AC joint osteoarthritis or osteolysis, where especially if they've played a ton of golf um, over their lifetime, we know that in that horizontally adducted position, you get a compression force at the AC joint and we get a little bit of shearing force. And over time, you can develop some arthritis um, in that area. And the progression to that is an osteolysis where the bone actually starts to wear away a little bit. So I think um, that's... An example that I, I don't know if it gets talked a lot about in, in golf uh, physical therapy, um, lead shoulder AC joint pathology, but it's certainly something that we should be on the lookout for um, because that will change our treatment, um, our treatment progression for that patient if it's an AC joint issue versus a glenohumeral joint issue. It's funny you bring that up because just last week, so there's um, one of the professional golfers that I work with who I really, I really only see him when he has some sort of pain. He has his, his program that he works on, but if he has some sort of injury that pops up, that's, that's typically when I'll, I'll work with him one-on-one. -on -one. And he has exactly that AC joint irritation in the lead shoulder. Yep. Um, and um, so then if somebody, cause I assume then there's going to be a lot of people that have that AC joint issue. So AC joint is the joint between the, like the collarbone and the, the acromion of the, of the um the scapula so in the front of the shoulder kind of just uh, medial to the shoulder joint a lot of people do have that type of pain what would you be focusing on to reduce that yeah i, I think in terms of my differential diagnosis if we're talking in a, in a golfer that has lead shoulder pain at the top of the backswing uh, and in transition there's really two things i'm looking at the first is the AC joint, and usually patients are pretty good about localizing that pain. They'll often point right to the AC joint, say this is where it hurts, this is the movement that, that bugs it. It's usually that cross-body reach and that end range of overhead elevation that irritates the AC joint. But the big thing is that they can kind of poke right to it. The other thing I'm looking for uh, in the lead shoulder with pain during that phase of the swing is posterior instability. Right, so we talked about anterior instability, particularly in the, in the trail shoulder. But in the lead shoulder, I think what I see a lot of is posterior instability. Yeah. So in the top of the backswing, uh, when the, the lead arm is all the way across your chest, as you start to rotate your hips and rotate your body, the arms lag behind and your hands are connected via the club. Right? So you know, the weight of the club uh, helps to keep your, your hands back behind your body. But what that does is the, the arm bone, the humerus actually contacts your rib cage and gives a good force posteriorly out the back of the shoulder. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're someone that's naturally hypermobile, 
um, you may be more, or if you hit a lot of golf balls, you know, you, you may develop some instability posteriorly. And again, I think that's a, a really big issue that, that doesn't get talked a lot about um, in the golf world and something that we, we need to be aware of. That's, you know, so that would explain the, like I'm seeing quite a few posterior slap tears in the lead shoulder. And that'd be related back to the instability uh, right. as well. Um, with, with, uh, with the shoulder arthritis, a lot of the programming, um, again, comes back to the posture is trying to, uh, improve the, the force coupling around the joint, try to improve the muscle balance around the joint so that, you know, the muscles are pulling the, the joint in different directions. And if, you know, a lot of people end up with kind of the muscles that cross in front of the joint being kind of tight and shortened, and that tension is going to pull the humeral head forward a little bit and displace the joint and, and the joints not made to be in that position. And so it's not going to work as well. There's more wear and tear. And so if you have, well, any pathology, but in particular with, with, with shoulder OA is trying to improve that muscle imbalance, get the arthrokinematics, get the joint centered. And again, it comes back to, to the rotator cuff. Um, also some self mobilizations, you know, I use a lot of mobilizations with, with, uh, with the monster band. Um, for people with their home program um, with shoulder OA. And this is the question that I get a lot. How much discomfort is okay? Yeah, I, I think that's a, definitely a common question that I get. Um, if our goal is to improve range of motion, improve function, decrease pain and increase strength, um, you know, there may be times where that does cause some discomfort in the shoulder. I use a, a couple of baselines to kind of judge what's appropriate. So I'll tell a patient, I'll say, let's make up a number. Let's not push uh, above a three to four out of 10 pain for this exercise. Now our test is gonna be tomorrow and the next day, things that we're looking for. Has your pain decreased significantly back to your baseline level of, of pain? If it has, then we probably did the appropriate amount of exercise. Um, if it's more so than your baseline, we may want to back off a little bit. Um, the other thing is the range of motion. So if we do uh, you know, a bunch of exercise and the next day their shoulder is significantly stiffer, that's usually a sign that we did a little bit too much. Um, if they are able to maintain the, the range of motion that they had, or even if they gain a little bit of range of motion, I kind of look at that as like a green light. Okay, like let's keep going. Um, I think that was an appropriate amount of exercise. So we kind of use those markers, uh, the 24 to 48 hour test is kind of what I call it. You know, one to two days is your shoulder back to its baseline level of discomfort and have you been able to maintain your range of motion following these exercises? And that kind of guides how I progress their treatment. Um, and also when I know how to regress their treatment, when we need to take a step backwards. Yeah. And, and so the, the, I guess the, the, the focus that, that, that I'm working on, somebody comes in, they have, you know, pretty severe uh, arthritis in their shoulder. The first thing I'm, I'm trying to work on is, is posture and trying to improve the alignment, try to improve that muscle balance, get the joint centered. And then Mike said, working on mobility, not pushing it hard. And I use a very similar type of, um, I guess, system or scale as Mike, but pretty much all of my injuries I'm looking for, like, maximum three or four out of 10 and you know the whatever increased discomfort there may have been from the session that should be 
uh, you know, gone by the next day or, or at the most two days later. A lot of people want to strengthen their shoulder when it comes to arthritis, but I find that you got to be really careful with that. Um, if the mobility is not there, if the posture hasn't been improved, like if the joint is still misaligned and you're getting that extra wear and tear, and then on top of that, you're loading it and, and trying to strengthen it, that's probably not the best approach. And so again, probably the best thing to do is find a professional that can help you with this. This, this isn't like, you know, um, you know, your home workout routine where you're trying to maybe lose weight or get a little bit stronger when it comes to injuries, you can do more harm than good if you don't know what you're doing. So for the people who want to learn more, Mike, what, how can people find you? Yeah. And you absolutely. offer online services as well, don't you? Yeah, we do. Um, in terms of physical therapy, we do telehealth physical therapy. So if you can't visit us in person, uh, we're more than happy to hop on a call, um, do the best that we can to get to the bottom of what you're dealing with. Um, we'll do an assessment. We can we can make some recommendations as to either a specialist who you should follow up with, depending on where you are, um, or you know make some recommend recommendations on how we would we would go about treating this. Um, so that's an option. Um, in terms of fine, and then we also have online training programs. Um, so I have one with my partner Adam Koloff called Fit for Speed. It's a little bit more on the golf performance um, side of things. And then Champion, we have a, a Champion Golf Performance Program that's online. So if you're looking more for golf training and golf performance, um, those are kind of the resources um, that that I'd recommend if you're interested in working with us. Um, you can definitely come visit us in, in person at, in Boston. Uh, it's really nice in the summer. Probably don't come in the winter. It's pretty cold. Um, but if you want to learn more, I have a, I have a website, MikeSkeeter.com. Um, and then I have an Instagram, which is MikeSkeeterDPT. Um, and I tend to put out more golf-related content um, than, um, than even physical therapy content. I really, I really try and keep it golf-focused on my Instagram. Yeah, and, and I'll put uh, the uh, link to your website and the Instagram in the description um, on the uh, on my website as well. So, Mike, I, I appreciate this, man. Let's do let's do another episode where maybe we do uh, knee injuries as well. Sure. Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. Hopefully, people enjoy getting into the you know nitty gritty of the clinical side of uh, you know treating shoulder and and working with golfer uh, golfers. I think it's it's very interesting. Yeah. All right, Mike. So I appreciate it, man. I know the audience appreciates it as well. And, and we will talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks, Thomas.